an Indian street food restaurant that serves pav bhaji and belpuri and vada pav amongst all of these restaurants in America that are so incredible and have all the ingredients to win the equivalent of outstanding movie i was blown away by india's reaction to it i mean my mom's phone didn't stop ringing for like two months you know from people calling from everywhere congratulating her it was one more way of showing that we've arrived hi everyone you're listening to the limitless grid podcast our today's guest is the james beard award winner mehrwan irani Mehrwan brought Indian street food to mainstream America. So starting with a single restaurant, Chai Pani, Mehrwan has now built an empire that celebrates the vibrant and diverse culinary culture of India. In our conversation with Mehrwan, we explored how his life in India was, his career trajectory, how he started Chai Pani and much more. So grab your chai and here's Mr. Mehrwan Irani. Welcome to the Limitless Grid podcast. Super excited to have you. Excited to be here. Thanks for making the time. We read that you know your parents had like bed and breakfast um, at your home. So, can you share us what the experience was like? Yeah, um, it, it had a profound influence in my life because it essentially exposed me to a whole different world in Western culture and civilization, and most importantly, food. that would normally would never have been accessible to someone like me growing up in a small town like Ahmedabad you know in 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 Maharashtra especially back then in the 70s and 80s because there was just so little of that happening but because this uh, ashram was in my town the Mehrbab ashram where a lot of westerners were coming um as you mentioned my grandmother with the help of my parents you know opened up their home because there weren't enough hotels um in, in the area to or at least of a quality that could accommodate westerners you know as we called them so um you know when they did that we slowly started have seeing folks coming and staying there and obviously my parents had to both figure out um a, a, including me a couple of things the first being just um how to culturally relate to you know folks from a completely different part of the world and number 2 was how to make the food translate um you know to folks from a different part of the world so bear in mind they weren't staying in a hotel so this wasn't the classic traditional uh hotel idea of food you know what they would get would be the usual probably the chicken tikka masala the naan the saag paneer but just maybe with less spices no they were staying in a home so really home cooking had to translate to a western palate which isn't as simple as oh just put less quote quote masala in it and um that's where i think my first culinary influence was formed by seeing my mom and the folks that were helped her uh create meals for westerners that were very much indian but done in a way where i could enjoy it and the indian side of the family could enjoy it and watching the westerners also love this food and realizing that there is a way to take our cuisine and make it accessible and approachable without dumbing it down um and interestingly because she was coming at it from the point of a home cook it was a lot easier than if she was coming at it from the standpoint of a restaurant chef or a restaurant cook so those those two um you know epiphanies one is how to relate to western culture uh, including like accent and terms of speech and idioms and my mind being open to the way you know somebody looks at things and the aesthetic from a different part of the world and then number two the food That's really interesting. You mentioned that most of the travels that came to your home to stay they came because of the ashram like 
did that influence your spiritual journey or your curiosity? Oh, no, I mean, the, the, the Mirabha Ashram was very prominent in the town, and my parents and, and grandparents uh, were already followers of Mirabhava at the time. So that's why they opened up their home, you know, it was as much a commercial enterprise as much of a spiritual exercise. You know, it was a little bit of both. So, um, you know, but growing up in India, religion, spirituality, having a Baba, a guru, is, it's, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon, right? I mean, as we all know, you can be, you know, religiously, you could be a, a Krishna devotee, but also follow the, you know, the teachings of Sai Baba, you know, and you think of one as your God and one as your spiritual guide. And so for me, it was very easy to reconcile that, you know, while I was Parsi and my mom was Hindu, so traditionally our prophets and gods would be different, that Mirababa served as a spiritual master, a spiritual guide um, for my family. So, but it was very interesting to see um, Westerners and Americans that didn't have um, the same relationship with spirituality like we do in India, or at least making a distinction that you can have a religious path and a spiritual path, and sometimes they can be a little bit different. They don't have that distinction, culturally speaking, or at least not back then. So it was very interesting to see that. And and uh, for me to really, I, I would remember, remember wondering even as a kid to myself, what must it be like to be an American that suddenly discovered uh, a spiritual inner life? You know, whereas as Indians, you kind of take it for granted. So, yeah, of course, it affected me spiritually. And now how that manifests today on a day-to-day basis is, you know, this ethos that I picked up because of Mirabha's teachings, this idea of mastery and servitude. And again, for Indians, we very much have that built into our DNA, this idea that one way to worship is through service, right? Feeding people, the langar at the Gurdwara, you know, the, the big, huge communal meals we do for the poor. So that comes naturally, but being in the restaurant business now, that comes naturally to me here. I mean, there are times where Chaipani feels as much a Gurdwara as it does a restaurant, you know, when we when we take it upon ourselves to feed people. Uh, and uh, so a lot of that um, uh, idea of spirituality through service um, has become, um, is sort of, a, what would you say, is definitely an impact of growing up in that atmosphere. Just out of curiosity, this was before the internet era. Uh, how did people find about the, the Mayor Baba? People read a lot more back then, you know. <laughs> so uh, even even during this time and subsequently since, um, you know, many books were written on his sayings and his teachings, and uh, mostly by folks that had come from the West and experienced his teachings. And um, uh, and also um, he had traveled to America, um, I think, in the 30s and in the 50s. And at both times, it made a bit of a splash because around that time, I feel like America was certainly starting to look for. Uh, spirituality in the East, you know, especially by the 60s, you know, the Beatles came to India in the Maharishi and, you know, and sort of autobiography for Guru was very much uh, popular. And, um, you know, I think it coincided with sort of the, uh, you know, the sort of the beatnik and hippie era also. Um, so, yeah, people, I think, just read more, right? <laughs> they found books. And I think also at that time, there was certain, certainly a sense of seeking spirituality and many Westerners were looking to the East. So you mentioned a lot of Americans were coming to the to the ashram and to your home. Did that influence your decision to come to America? Of course. How could it not, right? I mean, I grew up being as intimately familiar with American culture as I did with our my, my own culture. 
And, you know, so even simple things like they would bring back then VCR cassette tapes of popular American shows at the time. Or, you know, some movie would be recorded on a VCR and, and, and we'd watch it. And music, you know, these, these Americans also bought their music with them, the music of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, so American rock and roll and American popular music, you know, I was exposed to all of that. And, um, and just also just uh, sort of uh, the difference in how we as Indians think of education and career, which is sometimes very linear and very track focused and single minded, you know, I mean, you feel like by the time you're 16, you're supposed to know what you're going to do. And then I contrasted this with these 20 and 30 year olds from America that were quite unapologetically unsure and unclear about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be. And they felt like it was a time for experimentation and for you know discovering yourself. And of course, that was completely inconsistent with anything my parents would have instilled in me. But being exposed to that, you know, made me definitely um, have a desire to come to America and uh, have that opportunity to pretty much, you know, not um, to be open to other experiences and other ideas and other careers, which in India seemed not possible, at least not back then. Um, and, and that, you know, I mean, how do you think I ended up where I am today? Right? I, I don't think my parents when they sent me to do my MBA. Imagine that one day I'd be a chaiwala or a chatwala, especially now in the 70s. So that definitely happened. You know, I came to America, and after a couple of years of being on an MBA track, I, I, as I assimilated in the culture, started recognizing that life is more about just the A to B to Z of the career, you know, and, and that um, it's okay to not know what you want and to be unsure of what you're going to do and where you're going to end up. And it opens one up to many, many more possibilities uh, from a career standpoint than was available if I just stayed in India. Mm. Mm. Did you um, go into restaurant industry right after? No. So while um, I was doing my MBA, I was in the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. And again, from India, when you pick these places, you know, half the time you're going wherever they accept you, wherever they give you a visa, a student visa. And wherever they give you any kind of money, you know, they gave me an assistantship. So at least that was paid for. But I needed to make money for just day-to-day expenses. There was a family in Myrtle Beach that owned a restaurant. And they were also uh, followers of Mehr Baba and had visited India. And my parents knew them. So they promised my parents that when marijuana is in America, if he's anywhere in the vicinity, if he needs a job, I'll give him a job. So I used to drive on weekends from Columbia to Myrtle Beach, a three-hour drive, wait tables for two days. And then either late Sunday night or early Monday morning, drive back to get back in time for classes. It wasn't the healthiest of, uh, you know, study, work <laughs> balance at all. I mean, I was constantly deprived of sleep, fried, certainly affected my, um, uh, my studies. But in a funny way, those two days out of the week, and then if there was a long break like Thanksgiving or Christmas or even summer break, I would then spend my whole time in Middle Beach working. And those two days to me were like the highlight of the week not coming back and going through, you know, you know, quantitative analysis or any of the stuff I was doing. And, uh, um, you know, um, so in a sense, I kind of got my first taste of the restaurant industry working as a, as a server, as a waiter. And uh, um, it definitely played a role much, much later in me, um, you know, coming back to the, to the restaurant business once I, went out and did a bunch of other stuff. Now, you know, the big coincidence, the life-changing coincidence that happened was that's where I met my then wife, future wife, Molly. Her parents were the owners of the restaurant. 
And although she didn't live in the South, she was living in, in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, she would still come home and visit her family. And occasionally, if she had a particularly long break, um, you know, um, what you want to call it, a wait tables also for money. Um, and that's how I met her, both of us waiting tables together. And, uh, you know, that was 28 years ago. And, uh, you know, we've still been happily married uh, since then. So after I finished my uh, um, uh, MBA and um, um, my studies, and I moved to the West Coast to be with Molly and stayed there for about 13 years and had a variety of careers. Um, again, coming out of uh, the program, I didn't, I never found appealing uh, the idea of just wearing a suit and a tie and going to an office to work at a, you know, an investment bank or any of those options. I would be hired and not even show up for work the first day. I did that a couple of times. I got hired by a tech company and didn't show up to work. I got hired by a, uh, by Dean Witter, uh, you know, they're, they're no longer around, but it was an investment bank at the time and didn't show up to work on my first day. And both times when my wife, what are you doing? Molly would say, I was like, I just can't imagine a life where this is what I do. So I accidentally stumbled up in the car business. And if you're asking what's the difference, the car business to me was like, hey, make your own fortune. You know, make your own make your own way. It was you were independent. Uh, I was working for Lexus. Um, I loved cars. I loved the industry. And I love the idea that any day you go and you kind of make your own fortune, you make your own business. If you were great, the sky was the limit. And, and if you weren't good at what you did, then you starved, right? And that, you know, I, as stressful as that sounds, uh, that I found instantly appealing. And so I spent about uh, 12 years between Mercedes and Lexus working in the auto industry and worked my way up to various levels of management. And then uh, finally, in 2005, my wife and I moved to Asheville. And then that's where the restaurant started. What What were your parents' like reaction when you said, you know, you don't want to be an investment banker or anything. I just want to like be in the car business. Yeah, they were worried for me. You know, they, they just felt like I, they saw probably, you know, their son not finding his way. Right. I would hear all the time my mom saying, well, here's what had happened. Finished my studies and my coursework, but I didn't graduate with my MBA because I skipped the summer internship, the final piece that was required to graduate, and instead went to California because I just couldn't wait anymore to be with Molly. And my parents would always say, if you had just finished with that, you know, you could have had such a much a better career. So in their mind, they always saw that I didn't finish this thing I started. And because of that, I was stuck doing these other things. I couldn't get them to understand that whether I finish or not, was irrelevant. I didn't want that particular life and that particular career path of going in nine to five, you know, and sitting at a desk all day. Um, and uh, and this gave me a sense of flexibility and freedom that I just enjoyed, you know, uh, a, a lot more. It, once I did well, and I remember the first time I made manager, I could sense a huge sigh of relief from them. At least their son was a manager. And you got to remember growing up back then in India, like being a manager of anything was a big deal, right? Bank manager, <laughs> insurance office manager. <laughs> so, oh, at least they could say when people ask, what does your son do? You know, because again, in India, it's such a big, big cultural part of pride parents have in their kids' accomplishments because of how hard they worked for us to be able to accomplish more than they did. You know, at least now they could say with pride, not just, oh, he sells cars, but he's a manager. And I completely understand when you mentioned like having that linear path, but a lot of people don't have that, like, I guess, like 
guts or or privilege to just like hey i i don't want to be in suit and tie but and i want to do something like that is different and i want to experiment and like try different jobs and they just get stuck in this like nine to five rat race and before they know it like a decade of their life has like passed by right i mean it's a very good point and and i would i would look back and and think a lot that how despite all the jumping around and trying different things i mean car business i nearly ended up in investment banking um i even tried a stint in advertising sales i had a stint um in oh and i in in, in the hardware side of the computer business you know i, I was uh I had started my own business where I was building custom computers for, you know, for folks that wanted high-end graphics computers or, or, or um, computers with high-end sound cards. So I did some network engineering. I did my, you know, MCSC. I mean, my A+. Plus. I mean, I was all over the place. But the difference is, I think it's okay to do that as long as you have the discipline to commit to it fully, see it through, and then decide, is this something I want to continue in a career or not? I think the folks that um, just hop around constantly, never giving something everything they can, never being excellent at it, and then you have the choice of deciding, is this something I want to continue doing? Um, and you're making that choice based on knowing I'm good at it. So it's not a question of, oh, this is not working out, so let me try something else. So never once did I have a job where it didn't work out. I took it, I did it, I did it really well, and then I could step back from it and say, okay, I'm good at this. I can easily make a career out of this. Is this, however, is this exciting? Is this fun? Is it fulfilling? Um, so it takes a certain type of discipline. I would say it takes more discipline than a linear path. path. Because, you know, the, here the, it's an active discipline to make sure you're not constantly saying, ah, you know what, I'll figure something out. Let me try something else. This is not working for me. Um, whereas in the linear path, it takes much less um uh, I mean, it takes its own discipline to obviously show up to work every day on time and, 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 and do what you're supposed to do. Um, and I think there are two types of uh, – it's two types of approaches to essentially the same thing. Um, you know, you still have to care. You still have to give everything of yourself to it. And you still have to master it. You have to be good at it. You can't, you can't just, you know, be the person that becomes the jack of all trades and the master of none. Yeah. So when you were doing that and you're also mastering that particular job or the skill, how long did you wait before you were like, okay, I can do this. I can make this my career, but this is not for me. And you decided to, you know, pursue something else. I mean, this is where it's part intention and part just life happens, right? There was a few times where I would have happily carried on if something major happens. Perfect example uh, up by from 2005 till 2009, I was in luxury real estate development, now in North Carolina, doing extremely well, um, liked what I was doing, um, could see a future in it, and it was very lucrative, you know. And I, I mean, and at this point, I'm in my 30s, you know, allowed me to buy my first home, and and was certainly you know a path career path there. So this could be enjoyable. It had an entrepreneurial side to it, you know. I could certainly go into the one day I could see myself being one developer. But then 2009 hits. The economy crashes. The largest global recession since the Great Depression hits. And real estate, the bubble burst. Especially luxury second home real estate where people, what we were selling was sec, second and third vacation homes for folks, you know, that were in the multiple millions of dollars, you know, with private 
golf club memberships and airstrips and all that. So, you know, so sometimes life happens and you just have to pivot and figure out, okay, this door just closed. What can I do next? Um, and sometimes it's intentional where, for example, you know, when I was doing sort of uh, hardware-based tech, tech, you know, building computers and all that, I, I just realized that um, the the part of the job that was enjoyable was more, you know, trying to figure out what it is that the client wants and, and you know, in terms of their needs in terms of whether it's graphic design or in terms of, you know, their, their musicians and, you know, and actually building the dang things. It was just that wasn't fun, right? And that if I couldn't scale that, then I'd be stuck spending more time doing that than actually the part of the job that I enjoyed. And it just seemed like I couldn't find a way out of that, getting stuck in that. And I said, "All right, well, then maybe this doesn't make sense as as a, as a investing more time into doing this." So I think you have to. What's that old saying? Don't have plans, have goals. And if your goal is to end up in doing something that every day you wake up, you're excited about, you look forward to it, you're growing, that you um, you know are able to provide for your family, whatever it is, there's many ways to get there. So you can certainly make some plans. Well, let me try this. Let me try that. But sometimes life has a way of derailing your plans. But if the goal doesn't change, then you'll come up with a new set of plans to ha- how to get there. And even in the restaurant business right now, I constantly am in a position said, okay, well, our goal is to do this or open this restaurant in this market, but our plan just fell through because this piece of real estate we're looking at didn't come available in the neighborhood we want. Well, the goal hasn't changed. Now you just got to go back to the drawing board again. Um, so you were doing real estate right before the bubble burst and you started Joy Pani after 2009, right at the peak of the, the recession. Why did you decide to start Chai Pani right during the recession when when customers were cutting costs? Right. So, you know, obviously, you know, Chai Pani wasn't just a, a, you know, a fanciful pot that popped in my head, like maybe I can try this. All along through this journey from graduation, from arriving in America until the day Chai Pani opened, I'd been building a vision, if you will, in my head of... Um, what Indian food in America can look like and starting from seeing what my mom was doing, right? And then I came here and, and saw Americans not responding to or relating to Indian food the same way they did when I was a kid and my mom was making Indian food for them. I could see there was a huge gap between how, I mean, my mom became a legend amongst the community of these Westerners that used to come. They would go back and like come back again a year or two later and say, we came as much for Mary Baba as we did for your mom's cooking, you know, um, because of how much they loved it. And seeing this visceral response that Americans were having to the way she cooked Indian food would completely change their, not just change their minds and their attitudes to Indian foods, sort of change their, um, you know, their cultural experience of India. Um, and, and then I come here and I see that food in America, Indian food in America is not anywhere close to doing that. So I'd been building this vision in my head of a combination of, um, you know, changing not just the perception of Indian food, the way I saw my mother do it, but also changing the cultural perception of India through the food, mm. right? Using food as a medium for uh, expressing the India I knew, uh, you know, in, in a way that I felt would uh, was more true to, to the country. And that's why street food, because, you know, capturing the part of India that, is 
democratic and accessible to all of us, life on the street, right? Belongs to nobody. Um, and um, um, so when the recession, I mean, so this visionary building in my head, but when the recession hit, um, I probably was, because of my age, at that point I was 39, getting comfortable with the idea of settling into the real estate world. I felt like I'd done all these things, never really found the thing that I said, oh, this is it. But it was very successful. Cars, computers, blah, blah, blah. And here I'm successful in real estate. And I was entering that phase of my life saying, look, it's okay to have a good job, uh, doing well, still has many of the attributes I enjoyed about work, freedom, flexibility. I'm not you know, wearing a suit and tie and showing up on somebody else's schedule. And, uh, and also had an entrepreneurial itch to it. Um, so when that got taken away, um, Molly really challenged me at that point and said, look, you know, you're at the phase of your life, like whatever you pick to do next, you're probably going to be doing it for a long time. Like, you know, the older we get, the more, the less of the risks and chances we're willing to take that we did in our twenties and thirties that I was willing to take. You know, at this point we have a kid, we have a home, there's a lot more at stake. And she was just worried that I would find the next thing and be really comfortable with it. And that would be the end of that. And I guess she saw in me always a restlessness and a sense of feeling that I was supposed to be doing something more meaningful uh, in terms of giving back to the world. And again, that comes from my spiritual background and this constant sense that I have that a true spiritual path is one in which you do meaningful things that give back to everybody around you. And she said, if you could capture that in a business or a job or a career, what would that be? And I think I involuntarily said, well, probably something to do with food, but think of how unrealistic that is. And uh, she said, is it? I mean, you're at the precipice of, you know, this, this sort of financial catastrophe. If things were going well, you would never change anything. Too risky. But now that things are falling apart, what risk is there in trying something completely different? And of course, she was absolutely right. And I would that would be my best piece of advice to someone. Every now and then, you're given an opportunity to where something that seemed extremely risky to do, but something you want to do, is no longer risky because the landscape is completely changed. So, and she was absolutely right. I'm like, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, like, what risk is there in doing something the career I'm in is already falling apart by the minute? So, uh, let's do the thing. And that's why the timing of Chaitanya opening. Um, and when I thought about it, um, and to your point, I did really um, think about if I'm opening a restaurant now, given the current economic climate, you know, what kind of restaurant should it be? And I remember reading an article that, you know, that in the middle of this recession, uh, McDonald's profits were sky high and the revenues were sky high which made sense. Folks were on a tighter budget, you know, all the way down the economic, socioeconomic chain. So everybody was eating one step down, you know, uh, Chipotle's were getting busier and McDonald's were getting busier while things that seemed, you know, uh, frivolous or, you know, um, were, 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 were having a harder time. And I realized in that moment that, oh, if I open an Indian street food restaurant, that from a price point can compete with a Chipotle or a McDonald's or a Subway, but can provide a significantly more nutritious and delicious and experiential meal. Like, how can this go wrong? 
Uh, well, you know, we lost money for two years, but that's besides the point because I priced things too low. Even though there was a line out the door, I was so obsessed with this idea of giving folks an alternative. And in my mind, that was an act of service, you know, giving somebody the option of instead of eating, you know, uh, thinking McDonald's, for example, like, you know, what I consider the term industrialized factory food uh, to come in. And even if, I mean, I remember you could get a bowl of rice and dal at Chaitani with mango pickle for four ninety nine, And I'm like, why would you go eat a foot long at Subway, you know, for, for, for that price, if you could come to Chaitani and eat a nutritious, healthy meal that Indians eat every day. And um, um, so that was a really long answer to your question. Uh, was I worried about the uh, economy and the market at the time? Uh, in, in fact, I saw it as an advantage to opening at that time. That's a really awesome thought process. And one of the reasons like, why we do this podcast is we want to have like a accurate like understanding of like what it takes to start the business like we see the final product we see like james baird award chaipani but when you started chaipani in 2009 like how long did it take for you to come up with your business plan or your financials or marketing strategies and most importantly like what to put in your menu yeah I mean, I, you know, my MBA kicked in and I realized that I can't just open a restaurant, that surely there's a, a plan, you know, that for, so I started studying the business first, you know, even though I had this idea of Chaipani, I said, and everything, everywhere I looked, it seemed like, for the most part, at least in the genre that I was looking at, the sort of semi-casual, you know, mom and pop type business, that nobody seemed to have a plan, right? It was just hit or miss, you know, here's what it seems like to me, that somebody had an idea for, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. Maybe they went to culinary school. Maybe they worked in another restaurant. They had a vision on their head of some, uh, you know, some concept that they wanted to do or the kind of food they wanted to put in their plate. And their success or failure seemed very arbitrary to me. Just seemed random, seemed like luck. Like, you know, they maybe hit the right location or the right moment for which people were excited and interested in whatever it is, cookies or or, or, or Mediterranean cuisine, or another Italian, or um, I, and um, either that or it seemed formulaic, like oh, let's just buy a franchise, a Subway franchise, a Denny's franchise, you know. And um, so I sat down and did a lot of research um, and came up with the, my best understanding of what it is that makes restaurants successful and what is it that that makes them fail. And the one that stuck with me the most was, regardless of what you're opening, it is really important that people have a clear idea of what it is that your restaurant does. Look at it this way. Um, we, how many modern American restaurants are there where if you tried describing the food, you have a hard time? Mm -hmm. We use, oh, it's farm to table. It's, it's, you know, like, you, you know, whereas if some, if you're describing a Chinese restaurant, it takes you no time. It's Chinese. It's Mexican. It's barbecue. It's Italian. Those restaurants that have usually an ethnic ethnicity to them, everybody understands what they are. But the minute you start getting into some complicated vision, you know, it's harder not to say that you can't pull it off. I mean, you know, how do you describe a restaurant like 11 Madison to somebody or Nova? You know, you have to use like 400 words. 
And yet, of course, they're successful, but those are the exceptions. I mean, for every one 11 Madison Noma or any one restaurant of its caliber, there's a hundred to a thousand that failed and didn't make it and just went out of business. And you're like, well, what happened to that place? Oh, it was a modern American restaurant. Now it's normal. It's gone back. But I swear to God, you go to a strip mall and that Chinese restaurant has been there for 40 years. Right? <laughs> that is so it's true. Yes. Always there. Yes. There was this epiphany I had that, you know, there's a lot to be said for people clearly understanding what it is that you do. Don't complicate it. So my restaurant was Chaipani. And every time you see the name Chaipani below it, it says Indian street food. And I figured even if people are not sure what Indian street food is, they know it's Indian and they know street food and they'll put two and two together. There was things like that that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And then I took my business plan and I went to my bank, you know, and I said, I'm looking for a loan. And of course, they laughed all the way to Timbuktu and back. Bank after bank, lender after lender, small business administration, you know, local credit unions, business incubators, they all were saying, we're not lending money right now. You know, our lending guidelines have just essentially handcuffed us. And besides, we can't lend to a restaurant. You have no assets. You have no, you know, this is the failure rate is, you know, 50% or more. Um, You know, we, we can't do it. So I had to raise money from friends and family by writing an open letter to everybody I knew that was in my Rolodex and say, we're doing this thing. Uh, we're opening a restaurant. I didn't address it to any one particular person because I didn't want to put that pressure on anybody feeling obligated that they had, you know, because of our relationship. It was literally an open letter. Now, today, they'd call it crowdfunding, right? But that, back then, it was friend funding. And uh, so I sent this out. And, um, you know, and people started writing back and said, oh, my God, this is so exciting. And, you know, whether it was some, I mean, I'm not kidding. Some checks were as low as $20. You know, this is all I have, but please, you know. And um, and slowly between what little we had saved and a handful of folks that are, you know, our angel investors, if you will. But back then, being an angel investor meant like $5,000, right? Um, you were, we were able to open this restaurant for about $75,000. And uh, very quickly realized that um, no matter how well I planned, um, all of those plans went out the window the minute the the doors opened and and my first customer walked in. How long did the planning and research take? About April, May, June, four months I spent. Okay. My my wife and I had this conversation in um, April of uh, 2009. And by September 23rd, we had opened the restaurant, but we didn't get the keys to the restaurant till like August 1st. So we opened the restaurant in 45 days, but all that time up to it was just me um, thinking of every reason that a restaurant fails and planning against it, Um, you know, mitigating. I mean, just now today, call it risk mitigation, but this wasn't risk mitigation from the standpoint of, oh, um, well, this is going to happen, so we need to make sure we have this. I would always go, but why does this happen? And is there a way to open a restaurant or to think through this way? It just doesn't happen. Then you don't have to mitigate the risk of it. You just set up, you know, you set up a, a foundation to where this thing just doesn't happen to us as much as I could. And the more time I spend looking at, well, why do uh, restaurants, you know, fail uh, you know, 50% of them fail in five years. Why do, you know, customers not understand, you know, X, Y, Z. More often than not, it was just a 
lack of sitting and really just thinking it through, most of them were just doing what they saw everybody else doing. Um, you know, oh, this, we, we go to restaurants, we see what they do, I can do it. I mean, you know, I'll say one funny thing. There are very few enterprises or, 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 or fields of business in the world where the average person in the street feels completely qualified to come in and give you an advice on how to do it. But in the restaurant business, everybody feels qualified to come in and tell you how to do it. Yeah, I'm sure. So how long did it take for you to drop the menu? What was the process like? You happened, uh, I think I started at 11 p.m. on the night I had the idea for Chaitani. And I think by 2 a.m. I had the menu more or less written. And I'm seeing at least 70% of the menu today is um, it basically what I sat up in bed and wrote. Because, I mean, I wasn't inventing dishes. I was thinking back to the things that I loved about the street food of India that in my mind, having spent all this time you know, growing up in a, with and around Americans and then being in America, uh, in my mind, that would be, would translate. That Americans, if they were just given a chance to take one bite, would go, where has this been my whole life? And, uh, you know, and it wasn't the usual suspects. It wasn't obviously naan and butter chicken and saag paneer. It was vada pao. It was alu tiki chole. It was bhel puri. It was, you know, uttapam. I mean, I wanted to do dosas because I knew people would freak out over dosas. But we didn't have room to make dosas. So the only reason we did Uttapam, and 13 years later still do Uttapam, is because we didn't have room to do dosas. So that we did Uttapam, and people loved it. And, you know, and we still do that. Um, and, um, and on and on and on. So it was, it was very quick. The hard part was, okay, so I want you to do Wada Pao, and I want to make the best Wada Pao compared to what I had in India. Well, but in India, that Wadapau guy has been doing it for 20 years. And his father probably before him was doing it. And that's all he does, right? And the Bhelpuri guy just does Bhelpuri. I mean, at most, somebody might do two or three things that are related, you know, Bhelpuri, property chart, and maybe something else, right? And here's this guy who wants to do things as diverse as an Uttapam on one side and Wadapau on the other from parts of the country that are completely unrelated. And then, for good measure, let's also do a thali because, you know, give Americans something they're familiar with. Go ahead and put the butter chicken on there in the side paneer. So I have this hodgepodge of restaurant dishes, street food, gharka khana, you know, like my mom's just plain dal, not dal makhani or dal fry or just dal, you know, like, you know, um, yeah. And, um, and, um, and then Parsi dishes that, again, nobody had ever heard of, you know, your kima pao and things like that. And um, so that was the challenge, not coming up with the menu. So wait, how did you train yourself to make all these dishes? Well, the good news is that um, there was no culinary school that teaches you the street food of India. I can't go to, you know, the Oberoi or Tata school of, making street food or, you know, or in America, the Culinary Institute of America or Johnson and Wales or Le Codon, right? So I had to do what the street wallers do, right? They um, essentially um, have an innate sense of a flavor profile that is appealing to as many people as possible. Right? The Wadapa guy has to make sure that the Hindu, the Muslim, the Christian, the Jew, the Gujarati, the Marwadi, the Punjabi, the Bengali, all are going to enjoy this dish. So it has to have 
universal appeal, and of course has to win on flavor because if you don't, there's another word up guy, guy five minutes down the road and another one five minutes after him and another one five minutes after him. So to be the best, you have to win on the appeal, universal appeal and taste. And that was my approach to every dish. And it was as simple as, okay, let me think of the best bhelpuri I ever had. What was so special about it? If I had to go back to India and eat it five years in a row back to back, I would do that and recreate it. And don't worry about the rules because at least with street food, nobody's saying, Are, but Belpuri should always be done this way. Thankfully, none of that exists. Whereas in restaurant and cooking at home and traditional regional cooking, you'll have critics of every variety saying, no, 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 it should be this way, it should be that way. But with street food, there are no rules. And kind of like how I like living my life without the confines of the nine to five and the linearness of it, I, that's why the street food appealed to me, didn't have the confines of the linearness of traditionality. You are free to interpret it and, and, and make it the way you want to. Um, you know, you're only in pursuit of accessibility and flavor. The scale at which those vendors operate is insane. Did you, how, how did you solve the scale issue in your restaurant? And that was the hard part too. I mean, and that's where, again, I, I keep saying, you know, everything has to have discipline and intention. The discipline wasn't just showing up every day and saying, well, only I can do it. And I'm the Indian and let me, let me, let me do it all, right? Because I'm the chef. Um, the discipline was, I have to make myself dispensable, not indispensable to this kitchen and to this business. And the way to make myself dispensable is to show other people how to do it exactly the way I would do it and have the discipline to create systems and processes and recipes through trial and error over and over and over again. And this is over and above the regular business. You know, we, we have customers walking the door, we got to take care of them. So whether it takes till two in the morning or, or whether they have to wake up at five in the morning next morning and carve out the extra time to, um, to um, knowing that the investment that I'm making of this 80-hour work week is that one day I won't need to be in the kitchen. And if I choose to, can have a 20-hour work week. And, and, and that's what I did. I mean, it's not, you know, cooking food is not rocket science. I mean, it's not, you know, medical surgery. I mean, absolutely, you can go to a culinary school and you can learn things in a structured environment, but you can also go work in somebody's kitchen and learn everything you need to from them. So I called my mom over from India for the first um, six to eight weeks. And I said, you cook and we'll watch my whole team. And then you tell us how you would do it. Then I would take my guys to India with me. And we'd walk in to, you know, some dhaba or some canteen or some wadapawala and literally beg and plead and cajole and, uh, and, and until they showed us how they did something. And surprisingly, I found that most of these guys are extremely generous with their, with their time. I mean, you run into a handful of people that say, no, no, you made up. This is my, you know, I don't, I don't want to show anybody how to do this. But most of them had so much pride in what they did. They didn't mind sharing it at all. And, and, and through that process of um, absorption and then converting it into uh, a codified way of doing things, we built the scale that was necessary. Um, and along the way, you, you, know, you, you just learn these things. I mean, I'm a bit of an autodidact, as you could probably tell from my career. Whatever I figure out how to do, I do it well. And I learn it very quickly, whether it's 
you know, taking apart a car engine or being in, you know, or, or putting together, you know, um, or soldering a circuit board, you know, I, I luckily I'm a fast learner. So um, that part came easy to me. But the discipline, the work ethic um, came from um, higher education in MBA. So if any kids are out there listening and wondering, oh, well, why don't I just drop out of college? Because what's it going to teach me that I can't learn in life later? Or or I'm studying this one thing, but I'll probably end up doing something else by spending this money. I'm saying because it will give you a work ethic. It will teach you how to get things done on time, turn them in, and get critical feedback in what you did. That's what you're paying for when you go to college, not the knowledge itself. Unless, you know, unless you're from the age 16, you knew what you're going to be. Mm. Right. Early on, you spoke about commitment. Obviously, the initial days, like you mentioned, you lost money for two years straight. And, you know, I'm assuming COVID must have been really difficult as well. So how did you find the motivation to stay committed? Yeah, well, in the early days, it was evident that people liked what we were doing. I mean, there was lines out the door. We were getting critically written up within you know, a fairly short amount of time of being open. I think one year in, we got a write-up in the New York Times, which back then was the biggest thing that could happen to a tiny restaurant like us, right? There was a big factor of luck. The New York Times is coming to Asheville uh, to do a profile on Asheville. They do this thing called 36 Hours in Sicily, 36 Hours in Madrid, 36 Hours in Rome. And it was a huge, huge, huge stroke of luck that they were doing Asheville and that we had just opened and we were like the hot kids in the scene. So obviously, when they talked about the food scene of Asheville, Chaipani got a very nice mention, and boom, that that we were off to the races. So once I knew that, the rest of it in my mind was just a logistics problem. You know, if you have a brand, if you have a product, and customers want it, um, it's just a matter of time of figuring out how do you how do you make it profitable, how do you make it sustainable. I mean, in, in that sense, you know, there was a little bit you know, that seems to be the dot com mentality a lot of time: gain market share, then figure out how to make money, right? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But at least I had the knowledge of knowing, well, successful restaurants have figured out how to make money. And so if you have people that are willing to come and consume a product, it's just a logistics problem. So that part, the commitment was easy. I mean, we could see that success was just a matter of, you know, fine-tuning and refining and, and getting better at purchasing, getting better at pricing, getting better at managing expenses. But during covid the commitment at that point we had eight restaurants i want to say and um and about 250 employees and the commitment to keep going was to our team we had always told them from day one that this company is about the people that we're not in a restaurant group that serves people we're a people company that serves food the minute I recognized that this, you know, you got to remember by May, April, May of uh, 2020, there was no sense of what was going to happen, right? We just, the world had shut down. There was no vaccine. People were dying left and right. And TV are watching bodies piling up in refrigerators on the side of roads in India. So, you know, the, the sense was like, this could be really catastrophic. And my first and immediate thought was, um, what do we need to do to take care of our people? Because here's what I'd recognized, that we could burn Chaipani down to the ground every five years and the team would rebuild it because it was the people that built it. That protecting the team was the asset. 
the folks that had been with me from day one that knew how this works, we could lose every restaurant. And then the minute things opened up and we had to start from scratch, getting the money wouldn't be a problem because we have credibility, we have a brand, we have demonstrated economic success, and um, uh, and uh, and we have the people, the, the, the true infrastructure of any business uh, to rebuild any of these things again. So hanging on to them at all costs was the commitment, uh, not for saving the physical space or the restaurant. That can come and go. Spaces are a dime a dozen, you know. Um, you know, putting a menu together, no problem. Getting the supply chain back, no problem. Um, making sure that the folks that can help you bring, build it back, that was that was the commitment. I had a question. So I was listening to some of the talks you gave, and you talked about the concept of like obviously commitment and also commitment versus obligations. And one of the things you said that you did before starting your business was you gave up coffee. Like, why did you give up coffee? And how did that, how does that help you psychologically when you're going through hard times? That's a great question. Um, I forgot I talked about that at all to anybody. Um, so, you know, we had a vision for Chaipani. I had the menu written. We had a plan. Everything was set. We needed a place. And like I said, we had no money. And I'm imagining to myself, what landlord is going to give a restaurant space to this young couple that's never been in the business, has no money, and wants to open an Indian street food restaurant in the middle of the Great Recession in a town of almost 99% white people in, in the mountains of Western North Carolina, not even, a metro, not even a metropolis where maybe there's other Indians, right? And that's what I was hearing from the banks. I was like, why would you open an Indian restaurant here? You should be in Atlanta or Chicago or London or LA, you know what I'm saying? Especially, and and um, I was kept trying to explain to them, I'm not opening an Indian restaurant for Indian people. I'm opening an Indian restaurant. Anyways, long story short. So we found a space. And um, the current restaurant was, go was going out of business. And the landlord was vetting new restaurateurs to come in. And we went and interviewed with this guy, my wife and I. And really sweet couple, Sammy and Laura. And of course, they are landlords now and, and, and dear friends. And we've rented multiple properties from them. But at the time, they're, you know, asking Molly and I very normal questions. You know, uh, how much money do you have? You know, we're like, well, nothing yet. But how much experience do you have? Well, not quite, you know, all the very normal questions that anybody should ask in the due diligence. And Molly and I did our best. We answered the questions. I had a business plan. I turned it in. And... Um, and, uh, you know, I remember even asking them, have you ever had Indian food? And one of them hadn't. And the other one had had it once and wasn't particularly their, their startup cuisine, right? And we leave and I'm thinking to myself, oh. And the setup was perfect, as in, if we could get them, we could afford it. Because it was already an existing restaurant. The rent was cheap. The guy that was leaving was leaving everything behind so we wouldn't have to spend a fortune on, you know. And we had a limited budget. We had $70,000. And I'm still in the real estate, you know, working for this one real estate company. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I really need to um, get, get this, you know, this restaurant's everything. If we don't get it, this whole plan may fall apart. Now, in India, we have a tradition, and you're probably familiar with this, of giving up certain things. And usually it's food related. Like when my grandfather passed away, my grandmother stopped eating um, meat in, in honor of his memory. You know, and we, we do this a lot. And I'm... I'm spiritual, but I'm not a big rites, rituals kind of guy, right? I always slightly would 
not mock, but, you know, make fun of my, you know, especially my Orthodox family's, you know, sort of religious, you know, superstitions and rituals and rites as I saw them. And I used to always basically make fun. I said, do you think God's going to care whether you eat apples or not or eat meat or not? You know, <laughs> right. But for some reason, I it, it, it just <clears throat> hit me that I should give up something. You know, not as an exchange, not as a, you know, one for one, but as a sign of my commitment to this idea and this vision and, and, and how much it meant to me. Um, so I, you know, basically um, in the moment, well, first I wanted to give up like something that I would never miss. You know, I said, oh, I'll give up eating pineapple. And because I'm saying, I'll never miss giving up pineapple. When's the last time you woke up and said, I wish I could eat pineapple, right? So... <laughs> I said that, and then I also it occurred to me. Well, that's actually not how it works. If you're going to give up something, it has to have something that every day you're reminded of it, because that's a true sacrifice. You're reminded of it every day. And I was a coffee fiend. Fiend means like I was obsessed. I had even back then my own espresso machine at home. I mean, this is well before you know all the coffee nerds out there today nerding on coffee. I was nerding out, and you know back then. And um, so I gave up coffee and um, we got the place and, you know, it's a whole story of how that happened. But to answer your question, um, every day my Molly wakes up in the morning. She herself is a coffee gourmand. Um, we've got a beautiful, very expensive German coffee espresso situation that she makes every morning. It's a ritual for her. She loves it. And every morning I smell it. I'm reminded that uh, that I made a commitment that doesn't matter to anybody in the world. It's not a health. It's not like giving up alcohol or drugs, you know, because of the impact it has on other people's lives as well as mine. Um, it's this is you know it's it's purely a commitment based on just the value of making a commitment. That if a tomorrow I start drinking coffee, what's going to change? Nothing. Right. I mean, even if it's a purely superstitious belief, nothing's going to change. Um, but the fact that I take it as seriously as I do and not a drop is not just coffee as the beverage, but anything with coffee in it, coffee cake, coffee flavoring, coffee rub. You know, it's the what I'm giving up is the is the um, uh, the desire for that taste of coffee. And it's a daily reminder the power of commitment. Um, and, um, and I love it. It's a very important and meaningful thing to me, not on a spiritual level, it is on a spiritual level, but more in a um, reminder that life is, you know, life involves making commitments and sticking to those commitments is, um, in my mind, you know, as important a human attribute as anything as integrity as uh, as love as you know um so so yeah that's, that's what giving up coffee means to me and and the daily reminder oh i can't you know it's like it's that's that's i think that's the punishment if you will <laughs> that's that's the sacrifice is the daily it's not like i give up something that i don't remember i give up something everywhere i go oh yeah can't have coffee <laughs> <laughs> 
that that is a sacrifice how, how do you stay disciplined and how do you push the urge especially when your wife makes this fantastic coffee in the morning and the smell i mean i, I guess that's the inner strength that you know we just all have to i mean you know i feel the same way how does somebody wake up at 5 o'clock every morning and run or exercise or you know or 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 um you know um a mother wakes up every morning and just to care for a child you know it's not a question of whether you want to or don't want to you just have to and i think to me commitment and discipline when i take it out of the realm of a personal choice and turn it into um this is not a choice this is just what it is maybe it's a mental thing that i have to do with myself to 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 do that but i've always found um uh, that that part's come easy to me i will say i will give my father credit for that um he, he my dad is blind and being blind he has to live by a set of disciplines of precise path precise um uh, keeping things exactly where they are so you can find them you know and growing up i had to stick to that because i couldn't just take the keys and put them somewhere else and my dad would never find it or you know if a slippers in a certain place if i move them he'll never find them and you know for him um it's not a you know it's a matter of literally quality of life whether he is disciplined about where things are put where they're stored the order in which they're kept i mean imagine you know um trying to my my dad loved records right now you and i can flip through records and see which we want to pull them out how is he supposed to memorize the layout of 40 records in a row without having the discipline to remember it how is he supposed to remember people's phone numbers and and i seeing him do that i think had an impact on me that i can now recognize that it also developed in me that you know um uh having a you know the discipline to do things a certain way and sticking to it just you know it brings huge value in my life uh, i want to ask a little bit different questions so sure. you have multiple restaurants and a e-commerce business as well like how do you maintain authenticity and also stay true to your mind blasting hospitality concept yeah great question the authenticity part we spent a lot of time um talking about and the conversations luckily boiled down to be authentic be real don't say anything in print or through a social media text or in a design or put in the menu that you wouldn't say in real life to a friend a coworker a compatriot i feel like as human beings we do this very funny thing where we talk one on one very differently than we would when we talk to a group of people when we talk to a group a certain formality enters our speech or conversation the way we write the way we type and i'm constantly reminding my team nobody actually talks that way in real life like just talk to people the way you would in real life so whether it's an interaction with a customer you know instead of being awkward and stumbly especially when there's a problem i said just talk to the customer as you would to a genuine friend with whom you have a problem how would you resolve it how we teach our kids to do in school right try to talk to them as all the, the, the differences so i know it seems like a bit of a pithy answer and seems very simple, overly simplified but there's no way to be authentic to create authenticity you just have to be authentic and i think i hear a lot of mm, jargon around how to 
how to create authenticity. I was like, no, you can't. Uh, authentic is just who you are and be true to yourself and express that with everything you do. Um, and and then you surround yourself with like-minded people that like the way you are because we're asking them to kind of convey that to the guests, to the customer, to the food. Um, you know, for me, being authentic is not worrying about tradition. Uh, for me, being authentic is not worried about if what I say somebody might find, you know, whatever, um, uh, distasteful or inauthentic or, or not to their liking. Um, you know, I'm not saying things in a mean-spirited way. I'm just saying things that are very clear that this is just how I feel about it. And this is my position. And I'm not asking you to change your position, um, you know, to suit mine and vice versa. And then um, what was the second part of the question? Um, I said authenticity. And then there was one other part. How did you come up with the word mind-blasting hospitality? Um, so uh, you guys are familiar with Russell Peters, the comedian? Maybe, maybe, yeah. So he's the, he's, he's, he's the, so uh, I saw a clip where he was talking about the first time he gave a show in India. And, you know, up till now, his comedy shows have been in America and the humor translates well because he's pointing out the humor of the Indian diaspora or the Chinese diaspora in America and all the humorous situations that come about, the accents, you know, this, that, the other. So he's describing that he was got a little nervous about doing a show in India. Well, the Indians in India get it. Will they understand, you know, get the, you know, will they be offended by his comedy routine, by making fun of accents and, and people's names and all that stuff? And of course, the show was this huge hit. So he's saying that after the show, this guy comes up to him and says, Russell, Russell, you are mind busting. Russell goes, says that you mean mind blowing. And the guy goes, I didn't know, man. Anybody can blow anybody's mind. You blasted my mind. You were mind blasting. And I was looking for a funny way to, our staff that we want to not just blow people's minds, you know, which we kind of actually, you know, want to go take, take it to the next level. And what did I mean by that? What, what occurred to me, you know, as I sat, and like I said, I would sit and think about all the problems of the restaurant business all the time. And instead of trying to risk mitigate it, say, how do you just like not even have that problem? And one of the things I noticed that whenever a problem happens with a customer, whether it's the wrong food or you waited too long or the food's not good or we forgot the order or whatever it is, you know, there's this tension suddenly. The customer gets tense because now they have to say something and they don't want to be, you know, come off as being a jerk. And, you know, and, and customers do different things. Some people will say, don't say anything, let it go. What do you care? Just let it go, right? And then some of the guys, I'm paying for this food. I should say something. It's not what I expected, blah, blah, blah. So there's this unnatural tension that is created with the customer in my mind, I was like, how do we make customers feel 100% comfortable in telling us really and truly what they think without any, without any, um, you know, what, what do you call it? Without any charge around it, without any awkwardness around it. How do we create an environment where if you were eating at the restaurant, you wouldn't feel bad to say, I didn't like it. Imagine the power of creating that kind of environment. And I said, okay, look, where are the opportunities to allow people to be honest and open and, and, and not feel like they're offending us or not feel like they have to lie, right? And I said, usually when something goes wrong, that's a magical moment because we suddenly went out of the realm of transactional relationship where 
you know, I bought the food, you ordered it, everything's fine. You know, I'm polite, I'm the waiter, and you're polite, but we're not having a real relationship, and neither are we supposed to. I'm just here to serve you, and you're there with your wife, and the two of you are having a relationship. But suddenly something happens where you are forced into a situation where you have to have a relationship with me, your server. Why? Because something went wrong. And I, as a server, am forced into this relationship with you. How? And that should be a magical moment, an extraordinary moment, where we are, have, without contriving it, we have created an opportunity to connect in a way that we normally would not have the opportunity to. And instead of being afraid of that moment, I tell my staff, embrace it and get excited when that happens. And I said, and we will find a way to blow their minds. In fact, we'll blast their minds when that happens. So, um, and, and the, when we needed to come up with a way to describe what this ethos was, we said, let's just put it, call it mind blasting, hospitality. It is the embracing of the, um, when things go wrong, the awkwardness, uh, embracing the moment in which two people have to get a little bit real with each other. And what I found, my experience in other restaurants was when that happened, happens, things get weirder. You know, the manager comes over and he's all awkward and you're awkward and your wife's saying, hey, but let him go. Why do you have to say something? You know, and now they're making a big deal out of this and you didn't have to make a big deal. And I want to create an environment where, you know, you both say what you need to say and you walk away from this restaurant shaking your heads and going, these people are incredible. What an experience we had. Thank God something went wrong. You know, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, because now we're, you know, we, we, we truly understand these people and who they are and what they care about and what they stand for. And uh, in my mind, why ever miss out on that opportunity to show people who you really are and truly are underneath all of that and, and the ethos you have? Of course, it's hard and it's not easy and you're never going to be perfect. But mind-blasting hospitality, it's a mindset, um, not, 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 you know, some rules or some best practices. And, uh, and it takes uh, time and energy and effort, um, but that's, that's what the phrase was developed for. So you won the prestigious James Beard Award uh, for Chai Pani. What was the moment like for you? And for those who don't know what James Beard Award is, like, can you explain... What does that, what does that signify for a restaurant to get that award? I mean, it's been called the Oscars of the food world, and that's what it feels like. Um, it is, you know, it is our Academy Awards. Um, it's, you know, in Europe, it's the Michelin star system, you know, but the Michelin star, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, multiple restaurants have the opportunity to earn one star, two star, three star. There's no like, this was, this was the best, you know, if you will. Whereas with the James Beard Awards, it's that moment in which the industry acknowledges that off, off one of our own, we want to nominate as, you know, incredible at doing this one thing or the other. It's our peers. The panel is made up of people in the business or in the food business, whether they write, whether they cook, whether they own restaurants. And, um, and the submissions are done by the industry. So it really feels like an industry... Um, celebration of, um, you know, the best of us. And um, um, and over the years, it's gained more and more significance, especially as 
restaurants and food and cooking are becoming a bigger and bigger part of Americans sort of, you know, lifestyle and how they identify, you know, it's, it's almost become, you know, kind of like, uh, it's almost become a cultural, um, you know, touch point for Americans, you know, food, you know, especially with food network and TV and chefs have become like rock stars, you know, to a little bit, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, so, and, um, so to win any, any recognition from the Jan Stewart Foundation, it's a game changer because of how much Americans are tuned into also restaurants that win these kind of awards. So just as when a movie wins an Oscar for best picture or best actor, best actress, you know, it changes its fortunes, especially when it's a small independent movie that you could tell is a labor of love that sort of was an underdog. We felt that way. We felt we were the small independent movie that was made on a budget. It's not perfect. Where if you really look closely, you can see, oh, well, you know, they cut corners here and they cut corners there. And this wasn't this multi-million, you know, hundred million dollar budget to make, you know, with the best director and the best actors, you know, and, and it really felt like that. Um, and, um, and I think uh, the response from it was disproportionate because of India, you know, in addition to the folks in America that follow these things for the Indians, for all 1.1 billion or 2 billion or whatever we're up to, for an Indian street food restaurant that serves pao bhaji and belpuri and vada pao, amongst all of these restaurants in America that are so incredible and you know and 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 by you know have all the ingredients to win awards like this to win the equivalent of outstanding movie you know or best picture that's what that's the the award we won. Uh, I was blown away by India's, I think all of us were, by India's reaction to it. I mean, my mom's phone didn't stop ringing for like two months, you know, from people calling from everywhere, congratulating her. And it it made me realize how, how for Indians, whether they lived here or whether they lived back in India, it was one more way of showing that we've arrived. You know, that that we deserve a seat at the table, that our cuisine is now being celebrated, our culture has been celebrated, you know, the same way that other more traditional, you know, cuisines and cultures are being celebrated in America. Um, So I think it was a real watershed moment for Indian cuisine in America. And it opened the floodgates, you know, very soon after um, uh, Indian restaurant in New York, Sema won a Michelin star, you know, the first Indian restaurant in America to win a Michelin star. And um, and more and more, I see um, young, up-and-coming Indian chefs doing remarkable things. It's as if they've been given both the permission and the credibility to, you know, um, really um, go for it, if you will, to open concepts that 10 years ago we just never saw in America, you know, whether it's Pija Palace in, in L.A. or... You know, or my friend Sam Ford's opening a Sri Lankan restaurant in Kentucky. Uh, you know, um, we're seeing we're seeing a, a, a real moment where I think we'll look back at this time and say this is when Indian cuisine came into its own in America. And I also think this is going to have an impact on Indian cuisine in India, where families are letting their young children 
say, okay, you know what? Go to culinary school if this is what you really want to do. Go to hotel management school. That this is no longer a, now why would you do that? You know, <laughs> this is this is like, oh, this is something you can be proud of and it can be an accomplishment and you can be celebrated no differently than if you were a heart doctor or cardiologist or, <laughs> or started a software company. Are you planning to open one in New York? Because I really want to try it. And we were thinking like might like might even travel there to try the food. Well, yeah, I mean, come to Atlanta because then you can experience a couple of our concepts, both Chaitani and Botiwala in Atlanta. And uh, um, and uh, and also Asheville is just a madhouse so just to get in and out. Just is so stressful right now for anybody because it's so busy. Um, but, um, yeah, we are expanding um, our restaurants. Um, but I'm doing it in a very, again, uh, intentional way, going back to the beginning of our conversation, where... When we open a restaurant somewhere, the number one criteria is how can we be of service to that community? Not not just by opening a restaurant and serving food, but can we make an impact where the community is better off because we open there? You know, whether we give back, whether we, um, you know, provide employment, whether we uh, create a gathering place for people to feel safe to come in, and uh, whether we create a change in the way cuisine our cuisine is, is perceived. Those all matter to me equally as much. Um, so, you know, whether we end up in New York or not, or where we end up in New York will depend a lot on what do we have to contribute? What do we have to give? I love the names that you have. Chai Pani, Potiwala, because there used to be MG Road. I, I grew up in India, so I, so there are the multiple meanings of Chai Pani. <laughs> For those who don't know what Chai Pani is, can you explain? Of course. I mean, it, technically, Chai means Chai, the drink, tea. And Pami is is water, you know, and um, but together in India, as you know, it signifies so much more for us. You know, I I think I always think of it having three primary meaning uh, meanings. You know, the number one is hospitality. You know, whenever you go to someone's house, you know, someone's mom is going to come out with a tray and ask, you know, chai Pami and little namkeen little snacks to go with it, right? So in my mind, there's always that hospitality sense to it. Um, with with, uh, with offering offering some guests, you know, tea and water. Then there's the you know the the small the way we Indians love to eat. You know, our street food scene. You know, the little chai pani on the street. It's not quite lunch. It's not quite dinner. It's not quite a meal. It's this other than experience of food that is a big part of our culture. You know, I mean, it's the it, it, it it's it's sort of like to me, chai, you know, going out for chai pani is part of the social fabric of India. You know, your friendships. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in college at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I'm at the railway station because that's the only place where you could still get chai, you know, that late at night and, and sitting there, you know, drinking chai and maybe the samosa guy is still selling samosas. And, and, and to me, that chai pani is, it's not just eating on the street, but it's sort of how we as a society, um, you know, um, sort of integrate with each other outside of the home. And then the last, of course, is, you know, the chai pani, the little bribes, um, you know, because, you know, all of India runs on, I mean, you can almost think of them as tips. So when you say bribes, it sounds more sinister, but, you know, there's the big chai pani, we all know that, where the politicians get bribed, right? But that's not even fair to call it chai pani. But it's the small stuff, the five rupees, the 10 rupees, at least back then, now it's probably more like 1,500 rupees. It just keeps the wheels running smoothly. I mean, it truly is you know, to ensure prompt service, right? If people say that's what tip is supposed to mean, right? To ensure prompt service. Well, in India, the chai pani actually will ensure 
Trump service, right? You're asking for some paper from the, the government official. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Suddenly you realize, oh, <laughs> you know, don't you be there to send me? There you go. <laughs> so those are the three meanings of Chaipani and, and people love it. And also I think Americans are very familiar with the word shine, especially now, thanks to Starbucks and every coffee shop in America. So it was a name that was, I think, both uh, familiar to Indians and nostalgic and not alien to Americans that were hearing us say Chaipani for the first time. Yeah. And then uh, the Walla part, like we all know, you know, Walla is a guy that does something. So, um, you know, uh, we, even before Botiwala started, we'd all call ourselves Chaiwala. Excuse me for one second. Hey, uh, Manny. Okay. Sorry, my dog's dreaming and he's whimpering in his sleep. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, the Walla means the Walla. You know, we, we, um, we, the guy that does something. So I used to be the chief Chaiwala for years, and that was my title. And our dish guys were called Dishwala, and the people that worked in the kitchen were workerwalas. So when we finally opened a, a, a new type of restaurant, uh, you know, and I came up. I wanted to originally say Kebabwala, but then we went to Botiwala because I think it's a little more fun. And then Spicewala, of course, the guy that sells spices, yeah. <clears throat> so the, this is the last question. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? who are a little bit hesitant to take a leap. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. There, I would say two things. You have to understand the difference between the commonalities that successful entrepreneurs have and the uniqueness of the circumstances. So I think being a successful entrepreneur is recognizing two things. It's recognizing that there have to be unique circumstances. And you have to be in a place where a set of circumstances is unique. You know, that's your market opportunity, if you will. That's your recognition for a moment that there's something different happening here. And then the application of the disciplines of being a successful entrepreneur, you know, whether it's the, the work ethic, the um, thinking, thinking through of things that you recognize you may not know how to look for. You know, but you can still think those things through. Uh, let me let me put another way of putting this. Um, as a CEO of this company now, I think the skill set that I bring to it that's more relevant to it is knowing what the outside looks like. Most CEOs think that they're supposed to know what the inside looks like, run a company efficiently, you know, maximize your profit opportunities, maximize your you know, it make things more efficient, you know, bring your costs down, manage your people. Lots of other people are very well qualified to do that. Your job as the entrepreneur or the CEO of your own company is to know what the outside looks like, what the unique set of circumstances, the market, things that you are uniquely suited to address. So um, I, I would say, you know, for an entrepreneur, the ability to recognize a unique set of circumstances is first. And then number two is, you know, the discipline and the work ethic that it takes to figure out the things that need to be figured out um, are, are secondary. I see a lot of entrepreneurs trying to create something unique out of a set of circumstances that aren't particularly unique. Some guys saying, oh, I can make a better fried chicken or I can write a, build a better website. Or I can write a, you know, create an app that does this thing better. I'm like, that's not, that's just existing market share 
but you're trying to carve out your own piece of it. And that's very competitive. And just because you think you're doing it better, somebody else will make them do it better. But every now and then, you know, something's going to come along where you go, oh, this is completely different and completely new. And knowing how to recognize that is the number one skill of successful entrepreneurs. Um, and then, I mean, somebody can certainly make a very good living just, you know, um, trying to do something incrementally better, you know. And I don't think that's an entrepreneur to me. I think that's just a, a tinkerer. Somebody that tinkers with something, makes a better version of it, and then runs that, runs that up to market. And usually that, that advantage that you have from doing it something slightly better is, is temporary. And those entrepreneurs will then move on to the next thing to tinker with, and the next thing to tinker with. And you can make a perfectly good living doing that. I know a lot of people that have been very successful doing five completely different things. And each one, each time they did it, they made money. I, for me, I, I, I want to build something that has a legacy that folks can look back on and say, after this happened, things were different. You know, now somebody else is going to come along and tinker with my idea, you know, of Indian street food or spices. So in a sense, I would say Chaipani was the unique thing that I did. Spice while I'm just tinkering. Spices have been around forever. I'm just incrementally adding my own little flavor profile to it, my little this, my little that to it. I'm just doing incremental improvements. And as the kind of business that somebody else in a year can come along and say, I can put in a tin and I can have great branding and I can reach out and do collaborations, but nobody can do what, well, nobody can do. Nobody can recreate exactly what I did with Chaitani and how I built it and where, where I got it to do today. And understanding that, I would argue, is for me essential um, to a successful and wonderful and interesting and purposeful entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Well, that was wonderful. I feel like I got like a mini session in terms of like MBA class and like how business works, how to start business. This is this is amazing. It was very, very helpful. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. As you can tell, I apparently love talking. So this is a pleasure for me also. One thing that we want to personally thank you about is, like you mentioned earlier, opening the floodgates for a lot of young chefs who want to experiment with their own cultural cuisines. Yeah. And and also yeah, and something great. that we are proud of, something we yeah. grew up eating, but we can take our friends here and be like, "Hey, this is what we have," and them appreciating it as well. I love that you said that. That was one of the things that meant the most to me was when I when I hear, you know, young people. I mean, folks my daughter's age that are Indians say that Chaipani was the first time they felt proud to take their friends to a restaurant. You know, because of the cultural experience and the food, they they were excited. Like, look, we are cool too. Our food is delicious too. We're not just. So thank you for sharing that. That really means a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. 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 Th